Welcome to the Diamonds for Our Children podcast, a public humanities project and motherhood ministry. I'm your host, Katie Jo LaRiviere. Drawing on all aspects of what Pope St. John Paul II called the feminine genius, I gathered together the narratives, expressions, and expertise of mothers as a collective epistolary given freely as a gift to all children who might need the loving and secure presence of motherhood. This podcast is for my little ones, of course, but it's also for you, dear one, whomever and wherever you may be. If you need the love of a mother, join me every Monday. Each episode is a facet of the diamond of motherhood, and each contributes to a unified love that reflects light back onto the world. Let us fill our hearts up so that we can pour them out. You get to meet people who are interesting and have these unique struggles and have this unique perspective. And it just adds to our empathy. It adds to our activism. It shows us like where the injustices are happening and how we can fight them on both micro and macro levels. And I just think that there's so much beauty in, in Sonder and taking that to heart and, and making sure we provide opportunities and space for as many of those encounters as possible in our lifetime. Yes. How much more rich can you as the star of your own show be if you incorporate the richness of other people? I have often referred to carving a third way on this podcast. Since I was very young, I've tried really hard to live authentically and have so often felt unable to do so within the systems around me. I think many of us are feeling that way these days. But it's been especially true politically for me, because as a Catholic, I consider my final allegiance to God and his church. Of course, I'm a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen of the United States, and I do not take for granted the privilege and freedom that comes with that. Still, I have felt constrained by the American political system ever since I was too young to vote, because there was no party to which I could belong that upheld the values consistent with my faith. Now, I thought quite hard about whether to quote-unquote make this podcast political, but I quote Jonathan Lee Walton in episode 5 saying, one can't make moral claims that don't have political implications. And the claim on who we are as human beings is a moral claim. And that's where I think I land when I consider whether to discuss politics in our time together. If you want to know more about where I'm coming from in terms of politics, listen to episode five from this season. This week's episode fills in a bit of the picture I sketched there. My guest, Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, and I discuss a third way in terms of pro-life politics and what it means to ascribe to a consistent life ethic. And with Destiny's organization, New Wave Feminists, I think I've found a place to fit in politically. Additionally, as this episode gets started, I want to offer a content warning. In this conversation, we mention sexual assault, teen pregnancy, and abortion. If you're not in danger of being triggered by these topics, join us to consider a third way of thinking about the pro-life cause 
immigration, and the development of a nonviolent culture of life. Destiny joined me over the phone from home, so you might hear a doggo barking in the background, but I promise our conversation is worth the little bit of extra noise. Destiny Hernanda de la Rosa is a pro-life feminist who lives in Dallas, Texas with her brilliant husband and four hilarious children. She frequently contributes to the Dallas Morning News and her organization, New Wave Feminists, has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. And Destiny herself has been featured on Vice, BBC, and NPR's All Things Considered. I have followed her work for years, and I am beyond honored to have her here with us today. New Wave Feminists is unlike any other feminist organization, and that's because Destiny is not just another feminist. She's a badass pro-life feminist who puts her core beliefs into courageous action by making the notions of pro-life feminism and a consistent life ethic visible in the public sphere. She also does humanitarian aid projects at the border. Last year alone, with the help of over 50 other pro-life groups, they ran a campaign that supplied families at respite centers in McAllen and Laredo with $135,000 in supplies and donations. And this year, New Wave Feminists did a campaign on the other side of the border for migrant women who have experienced sexual assault, many of whom became pregnant as a result. When I called Destiny for our first conversation, she was literally in the middle of a mission picking up oxygen tanks that she and her team would deliver to Ciudad Juarez in the coming days. Destiny's activism is rooted in building bridges so that communities can serve women, children, and ultimately families better. Her website is newwavefeminists.com. Destiny, like I said, it's beyond an honor to have you here. Can I start by asking you the hardest of questions? Do it. (laughs) Great. Okay. So what does motherhood mean to you? You know, we actually work with a group called Big Ocean Women, and I love their definition of motherhood. Um, Their definition is anybody who cares for the rising generation, right? Anybody who cares. And so I think motherhood, it can be a biological uh, attribute, but I also think that it can be something where you are nurturing the rising generation. So this next generation of human beings that's going to inherit the earth, like making sure that they're kind, compassionate, uh, caring people. And I know a lot of people who are wonderful mothers, even if they've never physically given birth to a child um, or even adopted, but they they operate in the sphere of just caring for others and making sure that this next generation is one that, that will be good at resourcing this, right? That will that will make sure that it's taking care of itself and helping others. And I think that's what motherhood is to me. I love that. It's so in keeping with the mission of, of my podcast as well. I mean, I, uh, motherhood is not just a gift we give to our own um, biological children. It's, it's uh, a global, an interpersonal, a whole human thing. So I just, um, I appreciate that definition. Could you tell us a little bit about New Wave Feminists and the idea of pro-life feminism? Yeah, so pro-life feminism, I think to a lot of people, it, it seems like a non sequitur or a contradiction. But what we really want people to understand is this is just the most consistent 
form of feminism. So we believe that through our rights and liberation and strength, our job now is to take care of others. And, um, you know, that's going to look very different, but because we have a consistent life ethic, there's so many different opportunities to serve others in our community. And the consistent life ethic is basically a belief that human beings should live free from violence for the duration of their life. So that means we're anti-war, anti-trafficking, anti-death penalty, pro-migrant, pro-life. You know, we extend it into the womb when humans are at their weakest and most vulnerable. And so when you start looking at everything through this lens of how do I walk in peace and nonviolence, uh, you start seeing kind of this this concept that feminists have been talking about for a long time, right? Which is like, we're going to smash the patriarchy. But a lot of times they're complicit with patriarchy. They're complicit with things not changing. And what we're talking about is literally bringing down structures that are oppressing people and rebuilding them to serve our communities better. So that's going to look different for the teen mom than it does the person on death row. But I think whatever your niche is, whatever you're kind of drawn towards and you can become an advocate for, like there are so many systems that need to be changed. And ultimately, this has to be this giant shift in cultural consciousness of we are no longer going to accept the status quo, like nonviolence and peace and restorative justice has to be the answer. And once you start looking at everything through that lens, it just opens up the world of possibilities of ways we can serve our communities better. Absolutely. And so how would you then respond to someone who has a difficult time accepting the the idea of being consistently pro-life um, and and sort of this idea of pro-life feminism as it regards the mother or, or the woman who may be in a situation where having a child at this time is not easy or not good for her. Yeah, absolutely. And we get that all the time. And I think... Um, for far too long in the pro-life movement, it's been kind of, you know, well, this is this is ending a human life or these really kind of harsh um, delineators, which I understand and I get where people are coming from because we do believe that the child in the womb is, is the most vulnerable member of the human family and obviously it needs to be protected. But I also think sometimes we forget to empathize with the woman and that's where pro-life feminism does it a little bit differently. Uh, and within the pro-life movement, I, I want to add that caveat. So many people care about the woman and they care about the women so well. And, you know, I know people who literally build additions onto their homes so that they can house pregnant women who have been kicked out. So I'm not saying that they haven't always done that. But I think when it comes down to brass tacks, a lot of times, you know, if, if they only have a certain amount of resources or um, time, ability, money, it will become more of a baby saver type movement, right? And the when we even using that term, I'm going to save a baby, like, what does that mean? you're implying that you're saving it not only from an abortion doctor uh, or a society that is, is making it very difficult for the woman to choose life, but you're also saving it from the mother. And I think there is no stronger bond than the unborn child in the womb and the mother. And when we reconnect that bond and say, and, and look at it from a perspective of, we want to empower her so that she can save her child. I think it really changes everything. And when we love the woman and the child, both, you know, a hundred percent, not 51, 49%, um, then we can really 
start focusing on like, okay, what does that look like? How do we actually remove the need? And so a lot of times New Wave Feminist says we're not necessarily focused on making abortion illegal. Uh, And that's a pretty unpopular opinion. But we also have chapters in Buenos Aires and Chile and Mexico City. And in some of these places, abortion is legal. It doesn't change our work at all. Because you have to realize the desperation a woman feels when she's facing a crisis pregnancy, um, that's going to lead her to, tr- to trying to find access, whether it's legal or illegal. And so we view abortion kind of more as a symptom. And how do we get to the root? How do we support women so well and at the same time humanize the unborn child so well that abortion becomes unthinkable and unnecessary? And I know a lot of people say it's never necessary, but for some of these women, especially the ones in South America that we're working with who um, have experienced the trauma of, of sexual assault and who, you know, maybe already have other children that they can barely feed them. This might literally mean that, you know, someone else has to suffer in order for her to bring this new life into the world. It's a very real thing and it feels very, very necessary. And so how do we address those systems that um, aren't supporting her well enough and aren't creating a culture of life? I think I I come to that place because I myself had an unplanned pregnancy when I was 16 years old. And the only reason I was able to choose life is because I had a family that supported me. I had a roof over my head. I had medical insurance, like all of these privileges. And I am very well aware that they're privileges that, that not all women have. But that's what made it truly, you know, quote unquote, a choice for me is I wasn't getting kicked out. I wasn't being forced to do something I didn't want to do. Unfortunately, many of my peers were. I was seeing the exact opposite um, scenarios play out with them where their families were kicking them out of the house or the boyfriend was saying, you have to get rid of this pregnancy. This isn't going to work. So the irony to me is when we say this is choice, but so often it's not choice. It's there because of financial constraints or I can't have this baby and go to college. I can't have this baby and have a successful career. Those are things that we need to be addressing so that women truly do feel like they can choose life, that that is an accessible option to them. Absolutely. I love how you speak about this sort of two things that I'm drawing from what you're saying. And one of them is this imagination that we have to have for a both and system, right? We have to love the baby and the mother both 100%. That, that their lives are not in conflict with each other. In fact, they are uh, a two-in-one package. Um, I, I love that. And I was also thinking about sort of how you were talking about mothering the mother, yeah. right? And so that if we're a culture of life, that we indeed have to take on the position of motherhood, that caring for every person and mother the mother, so that she can be a mother, right? So fascinating and and beautiful the way that you describe that. And thank you for talking about the work that you do in South America and at the border. I was wondering how, you know, your notion of motherhood shapes that work that you do. Um, Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about Kay um, and the shelter in Juarez, and maybe even the shared notion of, of two heartbeats. Yes. And that's, oh, this is my favorite thing (laughs) that's happened in the last few weeks. 
we were down at the border where um, one of our board members, we call her Kay, she runs this shelter for women who have been sexually assaulted. And um, a lot of them have become pregnant through this. And some of them already have, um, you know, children that are a little bit older. And so you go there and we always joke, it feels like the circus is in town every time we're there. Because all we do is we just get to play with these children and love on these women and hold as many babies as we can possibly hold. And it's such an amazing experience. And I think it's interesting because, especially when I talk to Kay about the fact that, you know, here in the States, if a woman is pregnant because of a rape, a lot of times the the solution's like, well, you have to get, you have to get rid of that child. And, and, you know, we hear horrible things like that's the rapist baby, which is one of the most patriarchal terms that we still accept in our society today, because it is, it is that woman's child. And she has had just this amazing ability with these women who have been through the most horrific, violating, traumatic thing that could ever happen. Like none of them choose abortion. And she said, really, because it doesn't even get brought up. They come to me and I say, what do you need. And then I meet that need and they do have trauma and sometimes they have a hard time bonding and it takes a while, but they're also with other women who create this sisterhood of mothers where they're able to help them kind of walk through that because maybe there are a few steps ahead in it and they nurse each other's babies and they get up at night and help take care of everyone. And they just have this beautiful community down there that is nothing, nothing that I've seen here in the States. Um, But it's just so wonderful the way that they lean on each other and help each other heal from this trauma. And so when we were down there, we spent uh, the first day at the shelter and then the second day um, down in Juarez, they actually consider like walls and and structures public property like it's it's if it's the government's property it's the people's property and so you're allowed to graffiti stuff down there which is very very fun and so Kay works with this collective of artists and they do these amazing beautiful murals and one of them um this guy who goes by mambo that's his name he created this stencil of this heart and it was super intricate and this gorgeous stencil and we actually have it on one of our signs that says immigrant children have heartbeats too, because we do want people to remember this is even if, even if you only care about the child in the womb, you cannot ignore it at the border. Like there, there are women who um, are definitely in a highly vulnerable state being preyed upon, you know, Kay says all the time that here in the States, we hear the argument, well, only 1% of women are pregnant because of sexual assault. And she's like, it's a hundred percent of what I deal with. So like, it's still something that is very, very real to these women. So we wanted to to tie that connection together, you know, people who are passionately pro-life, but then kind of silent on border issues or will fight border issues because it's viewed as this opposite side of the political spectrum. And we want to humanize that. And so our campaign has always been, this is about people, not politics. Like there are people in our backyard, we're here in Texas, they need help. And the fact that they just didn't win the geographic lottery like we did, like that doesn't diminish their humanity in the same way that a birth canal doesn't diminish someone's humanity, neither does a border. And so Mambo had created this stencil and we uh, we put up the immigrant children have heartbeats to sign. And they were still cutting the stencil when we had to head back because it's a it's a 10 hour drive across Texas. And so I had to get back for work. And, uh, you know, my daughter came with us. So she had school and things. So we ended up driving back before they got the heart up. But they ended up putting two hearts up and they sent us this image. And she was explaining to me that as they were having this conversation, cutting out the stencil and spray painting it, that 
you know, there, there are two heartbeats. That's what we want people to see. We want them to see the heartbeat at the border. We want them to see the, the heartbeat in, in Juarez and El Paso, that both of these heartbeats come from people whose lives have intrinsic value. I just thought that was such a beautiful message, like humanizing people that way. And then one of our friends who had gone down with us said, you know, that that works for the pro-life cause too, because we're talking about these two heartbeats inside a pregnant woman's body, like her own heart and the heart of her child. And you just see all of these correlations. And I am hoping that being able to make these connections draws people into work at the border and caring for migrant lives um, because we don't want to call them out. But we've also noticed that a lot of the excuses that are used to not take care of migrants, like, oh, you know, there's not enough resources. We don't have enough room. These excuses, when applied to the unborn child in the womb, would never be acceptable. So why are we accepting them when they're dehumanizing other people? We've, we've made them this faceless, nameless group. And so let's humanize them. That is part of the beauty of the consistent life ethic. Mm. As our conversation continues, destiny helps me sort of concretize some ideas around what it means to become a culture of life. When we consider what it will take to make a culture of life where abortion becomes unnecessary. We're talking about just that, a culture, not a political system. The view we discuss here is that abortion is a human rights issue that must account for the full human dignity of the mother and the full human dignity of the baby. Part of what this means is that we must heal families not just women, not just babies, whole families, and for that matter, whole communities. So we're very much talking about a cultural revolution of the heart, which acts on a foundation of nonviolent, non-competitive love for the human person. Of course, political action must be at play, but the work we have to do now is the serious heart work. The work of making nonviolence the immediate and obvious choice. The work of reunifying the mother baby and mother baby family, and then the mother baby family community network of support. And doing it in a very Pauline way, not because we are required by the law or by policy, but because we know that supporting each other is supporting ourselves. Once again, I'm struck by the way that we need to live in a disposition of abundance rather than scarcity. I love how you talk about intrinsic value. Um, you know, it's, it's not an obvious concept, I think, in our society that every person, every single person has an intrinsic value and that value is not dependent on production or ability or wealth. I, I don't see that um, as a prominent part of our society. And so it's so, so important, I think, to emphasize that principle every, every step of the way that every person has intrinsic value. And I wonder if that notion 
of intrinsic value is connected for you um, to the idea maybe of tender mercy. You know, it seems like so much of, of the work you do at the border it has to do with this concept of being tender and merciful toward people who just don't have the same, like you said, geographical luck. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, somebody asked me on a podcast one time, if you found a magic genie lamp tomorrow, you know, would your one wish be to eradicate abortion? And it wouldn't. My one wish would be to eradicate dehumanization. Mm. And I think dehumanization is at the root of every single one of these issues, again, from from death row to, you know, racial justice to um, poverty issues we face to immigration to abortion. All of them at the end of the day come down to this fact that we're a very individualistic society and we're inculcated in our own little circles and we care about these people so much we would do anything for our children, we would die for our children. But why then do we see families who, you know, literally their children might die? You know, we're running into stories where you have gangs and cartels and all types of corruption and they are having to flee for their very lives. And yet they're met by a nation that considers itself a Christian nation. Um, and I'm, I'm personally agnostic, so I don't pass any judgment on that. But when you're very vocal about being a Christian nation and the very people who claim uh, that ideology then turn around and say, you know what, you shouldn't have broken the law and you shouldn't do this. And just this lack of empathy where if that was your child, I know, I know that you would be doing everything in your power to get them to safety. So all we're asking is that you empathize with others and you understand that this is coming from that exact same place. Their heart is exactly like yours. I often have that conversation with people when it comes to uh, abortion. We, we have a lot of pro-choice followers who just like the other work we do and they see the overlap and we've challenged them. If you're truly pro-choice, then what are you doing to make sure that women can choose life? I think also you are speaking just directly to my heart about this concept the way that tender mercy and intrinsic value go together, right? Because we don't, if someone is intrinsically valuable, then it's easy to be merciful. It's natural to recognize their needs and, and to fulfill them. And when you don't consider someone valuable or when you don't understand maybe on a really deep level, your own humanity and how it's connected to other people, then it's, it's difficult to be merciful, to let things slide um, or, to, or to just address the fundamental necessities that people have before you address your own necessity of the law. Yeah, I think you're on something with the interconnectedness and there's a group uh, called Rehumanize International and they talk about encounter. That's kind of one of their big words that they mm. use all the time. And the interesting thing, I've also heard Kay use that same word that it is so important to just see people. And, you know, when we're asking for volunteers and, uh, you know, donations or things like that, that's all wonderful. But at the end of the day, even if somebody can just come down and sit and break bread with somebody, um, there is value in that. And she said, Kay was telling us that a lot of the migrants, you know, they'll be on this journey for like nine months and, 
really not not know anybody and be by themselves and they they just aren't seen and then they sit and they have a meal with somebody who half the time doesn't even speak the same language but is just seeing them and they will say like for the first time in a year i feel like a human being again and so she has started kind of she she has a collective of stuff she does right she has the shelter. She works with a government filter hotel for COVID patients where her pregnant moms go. And then she also works with this art collective. And so we're in the process of helping her kind of start up a 501c3 for this. And for a while, it's going to stay under New Wave Feminist until any of us have the bandwidth to do it. But she named it Hasnos Valer. And Hasnos Valer translates to make us count. And I think that's so beautiful because it's just see us, like acknowledge us, make us count. And so when it comes to, you know, the pro-life community, we want them to see that there is a huge opportunity to serve right now. That's actually the reason contacted us uh, a year ago when we were working in McAllen and Laredo. And she said, I see all these pro-lifers who go to the marches and, you know, are dedicating all this time to it. And I think it's beautiful. And, you know, I myself am a pro-life feminist, but at the same time, I've got kind of abortion activists down here banging on my door, offering me $10,000 grants to have access to my women. And we could really use that money, but like, I don't want to do that. And I don't think that's okay. But like, where are the pro-lifers? Like, why, why do they feel that they can't address this issue? And again, I think it's because of this imaginary political divide we've made that, oh, that's a liberal issue and we're dealing with conservative issues. And the beauty of New Wave Feminist is we've always been politically homeless. We're a nonpartisan group. And so we have people everywhere in, in every uh, different political party and no political party and, you know, all types of stuff. And so when we launched uh, our first two campaigns were called Bottles to the Border when they were here on the U.S. side. And then this one was called Campaign Relief because we were doing pain med relief for uh, laboring women. And then it kind of grew from there. But when we did it and we just said this, this is about people, not politics. I was shocked at how many people that spoke to. And they're like, yeah, I need to do something about this. This feels like a conflict in me, like ignoring people's humanity here uh, by, by kind of dehumanizing or othering or just not seeing them doesn't feel okay. And so people just really showed up uh, for that campaign and they've, they've showed up for this one as well. And they're wanting to get involved. And so I think just telling people all the different ways they can, but even as simple as just, you know, come down and, and break bread with somebody, see them like this isn't for you, but I promise you it's going to change your life. It's ultimately for them to serve them and them just being treated as human beings. That's important because I also think when we look at the long term effects of this, if we have a traumatized community, especially when it comes to children, like I think of the children that are in these detainment centers all the time and the lasting effects of that trauma on them. And then, you know, these kids are going to be going to school with my children and in the workforce with my children and in my communities and in my neighborhood and making sure that they are happy and healthy and whole is going to make our communities happy and healthy and whole and not inflicting unnecessary trauma on them is really important. Oh, absolutely. When I think about these children who are in these detention centers, um, it's this complicated sort of paradox, right? That like in healing the traumas of others or in at least encountering them, we have to encounter again our own traumas, right? And we have to 
um, heal ourselves as well. And while this is painful and inevitably difficult, it is so, so necessary. And I just love that that sort of takes center stage in the work that you do with new wave feminists and the idea that we're here, we're here to heal. Like this is what we do. And it's a very, very mothering approach to something, right? And and at the same time, it's nonpartisan, but it strikes me as political nonetheless, right? Because maybe maybe it's the claim that motherhood itself is political because it fights both sides of a spectrum, right? It, it encounters humans in the middle of it and refuses to let um, a political system ignore human persons. Right, right. And I think it, in being almost anti-political, it becomes kind of a party that everybody wish existed, right? Like just this golden rule party of treat other people the way you'd want to be treated, like really basic stuff that we teach our children that we grew up um, feeling like should should be the way the world is. And yet, as we get older, and you get jaded, and you hear these talking points, and you're told like, oh, that's not our platform, you have to stick to this one, we start compromising in little ways. And then suddenly, these compromises are us arguing for things that are absolutely against who we are at our core as people, but it's it's tribalism. Well, we have to believe that in order to to fit in, right? So if I'm pro-life, I have to argue against immigration because my party that's pro-life feels this way about this. And we don't realize the impact that we're having on generations. And so in that way, I do think it is um, both political and very similar to motherhood in the fact that I think mothers, you know, one of our superpowers is not not living in the moment, probably because sometimes the moment is full of sippy cups being thrown at our head and not getting sleep and all these things. And so we're constantly thinking like it's going to get easier at some point. Right uh, now, as the mother of three teenagers, I can tell you it that's not on the horizon for a little bit for me. But um, it, you have different eras of difficulty, but you're always kind of looking forward to this future where I am raising the next generation. I am raising adults. My job here is not to be your best friend. It is to make you an adult that is capable of taking care of yourself and helping others and being compassionate and helping heal the world. And I think that's what we're constantly trying to instill in our children. And so maybe we're naturally more geared towards that. And then when it comes to the the political sphere, um, we kind of have this inclination that it's not about doing something right now, putting this Band-Aid solution on something. But for my children's generation, for my grandchildren's generation, like we have to solve this problem. This cannot be the answer. This inhumane treatment of migrants, this inhumane treatment of children in the womb, you know, whatever the social issue is, like we're we're progressing towards something that has to get better and it it has to move out of this kind of savagery that i feel like we look back on jim crow and slavery and all these other atrocities and and wonder like how could people have tolerated that and yet what are the atrocities right now what are our children and grandchildren going to look back on and say where were you what were you doing like why didn't you stop this this isn't okay because if we think we have a lot of information now about people who look the other way in the past, like our children and grandchildren's generation are going to have even more information and we're going to be held accountable and we're going to be expected to have done something to counter just this lack of compassion. And it's going to be small stuff. It's going to be big stuff. But being able to say we were trying to get to a better place, I think 
is the greatest gift that we can give to future generations. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. It strikes me that motherhood and the vision of new wave feminists have in common this sense of imagination as an imperative. We must imagine a different solution. We must imagine what is going to be good for the children in the end, right? Not, you know, what do I want to do now? Not how do I, um, you know, maneuver this political situation? Not how do I get rid of all these sippy cups? But in the end, when my child, you know, flies off on their own, when my nation is beyond my lifetime, what will be in its best interest then? You know, this is like this tying, this, this thread that ties things together. And I wonder if maybe that's the power of motherhood right now. Yeah, I think a lot of it, motherhood does teach us long game. The other day, I actually wrote a post because my son just had his 20th birthday, which feels super weird, like two decades of this human being (laughs) being here on this earth blows my mind. But the crux of my post was like, I remember as a terrified 16 year old when that second line showed up thinking, I have to commit the next 18 years of my life to this. And like, I have not even been on this planet for 18 years. Like, how am I to, you know, know if I can even handle that? And, you know, so then things start going through my mind about adoption and what are what are my other choices here? And ultimately, I ended up parenting again with this goal that I know this is an 18 year commitment. And then I made it to 18 years and I was like, not ready to get rid of it. Like, no, this doesn't get to leave now. (laughs) Like 18 years hasn't been nearly enough. I need a lifetime with this person because he's phenomenal. And so now we're at 20 years and just thinking about how I'm not done mothering. I will never be done mothering. Like that bond is so strong. But I think that that gives you this um, kind of, like I said, superpower that you think long game. And so it's not about quick fixes. And a lot of times I think that some of my frustration in the pro-life movement is they have this really low bar that seems unachievable of we're going to overturn Roe. And to me, that is the, that's just such a small, small bar, because again, I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. I, I don't think until we change these systems that are very patriarchal in their design because they were designed for men by men for a world where women were not in the workforce and in academia. It doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve the world that we have created that we're becoming. And so compromising and saying, you know, either just making abortion legal, cutting off supply without addressing demand or making abortion acceptable. And this is this is what we have to do to fit into this. Like neither of those are good options for me. It has to be something that is so much bigger than that, that is truly, let's look at these structures and systems that aren't serving us, let's tear them down and replace them with something more equitable. And I think when you start getting into that mindset, you end up applying it to all of these other um, issues like racial justice, like immigration, like the death penalty. You know, there, there are so many ways that we have been complicit in violence and dehumanization uh, simply because it seems like too much work to do something more. But again, I came to, to smash the patriarchy and to smash systems that aren't working for us. And that is going to take a lot of work. And it might be the work of my daughter's generation and their daughter's generation. This might be something that takes much longer, but we will get it done right ultimately. And we will create a culture where everyone feels safe and their intrinsic inherent value is recognized. And I think 
that will be the society that is my goal. That's my, my long-term goal that I'm always dreaming towards that I do think is possible because I look at generations back where people thought eradicating slavery wasn't possible. How would the economy handle that, you know, or any of these other injustices? We need this. We depend on these injustices because it's the best we can do. And I think now we're at a more enlightened phase where it's not the best we can do and we know it and we have the information and it's in our faces and we are connected with this, you know, global community and we can do better. So let's let's get creative. Let's find those solutions. Let's see what's working other places and let's try implementing them here. You know, I think about this connection that you're making um, with the abolitionist movement, and I'm thinking about maybe a a traditional pro-life response, which is like, okay, but we can't wait, you know, we have to make it illegal so it'll stop. And I'm just thinking about the very slow progress that we've made as a nation when it comes to racism and thinking about the way that the progress we may have to make in the pro-life movement will also need to be slow. And then I wonder if, if we can imagine a way of making that progress that is appropriate to its gravity. D- does, that, does that make sense? That, that makes complete sense to me. I think it has to be a more holistic approach, right? Now, just a quick aside here, I wanna make something perfectly clear. I think I can speak for both Destiny and myself at this moment in our conversation when I say that neither of us want for one second more to uphold the injustice of abortion, just as neither of us would accept for one more second the racial injustice in our culture. The point we're discussing here is how to go about using political action to do the thing it is incapable of doing, which is changing minds and hearts. And we're also talking about where might be a better place to put our energy and resources as we fight the dehumanization of both mother and baby in abortion and dehumanization in general. So it's we've already spent 47, 48 years now talking about Roe and trying to undo this law. But in the meantime, how many women and children could we have saved had we been funding alternatives rather than just pouring all of our money into political campaigns? Like there's a place for that. And I understand. But when most of our focus is just on the political and and changing the law, uh, which I would argue, you know, I speak at colleges all the time and I ask the students, the college students, who in here thinks that if tomorrow Roe is overturned, abortion is going to go away? Nobody ever raises their hand. They know better. They know that women will find a way because until we address that desperation, it's going to happen. And to your point of, you know, abolition, abolitionists and, and what they've done when it comes to something like slavery now that we have more information and we see the way history played out. Yes, they were erratic. They were able to eradicate slavery in in one sense, but then we had, you know, Jim Crow, we had redlining, we had the prison industrial complex, we still found ways to, um, you know, bite off pieces of that oppression and continually pass it down. So even just just getting rid of this one atrocity, it kind of bred more atrocities, because we weren't dealing with the core issue, which is that people thought, those with a different skin color were not as human as we are. And people in places of privilege were able to subjugate them. And so I think if we've learned anything from that, there is importance to doing this correctly and making sure that we humanize the unborn child, we support and love the woman. Uh, because if a time comes where Roe is overturned, I guess I always look at it 
from a law perspective, uh, like jaywalking. Jaywalking is illegal. Uh, people do it all the time. They might get popped every once in a while, but not really. It's not something that's really enforceable because everybody's like, this is kind of a dumb law. And if there's nobody on the street, then it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm being responsible and taking my safety into my own hands. Right. And so we see these laws that uh, people kind of ignore. And then we see other laws like rape and homicide, you know, that are atrocities and everybody agrees that these shouldn't be okay. Do they still happen? They do, unfortunately, but we all know that they, they should not be okay. And I think when we get to the point of humanizing the unborn child so well, which, you know, the advances in technology and everything else, even since Roe, have been astonishing. And people are literally having to be willfully ignorant when it comes to the child inside the womb at this point. We know that it is a human being. And because it is part of a vulnerable population, like look around at all of our other social justice issues. If somebody is struggling with mental health or, um, you know, homelessness, we don't look at them and say, oh, you're weak right now. So we should be able to eliminate you. It's the exact opposite. We say in your weakness, that's when I should use my privilege and strength to protect you and to help you and to offer you, you know, services so that you can get to a better place. But for some reason, we don't apply that same thing to the unborn child. So I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. And I think when we have that conversation and we do humanize the unborn child, then if a law comes along that, you know, we're going to overturn Roe, which, by the way, just sends it back to the states. So now we have 50 states that are going to be all over the map when it comes to what the laws are. I want it to be such a common sense thing because abortion, again, is unnecessary and totally unthinkable. Why would we do that? We have these support systems. We love women well. We know this is a human being. Like, why would we want abortion to be a part of our, you know, enlightened, civilized society? Like, that's I think that's the goal. And so we do have to look back on these other historical like fights for justice and say, what did we do right and what did we do wrong? And what could have been done better with the abolition of slavery that didn't just pour it into these new cauldrons of oppression of, you know, prison industrial complex and redlining and Jim Crow and all of these other things where, yes, it ended, but there were plenty of ways where we still kept oppressing people of color. I, I think we need to apply that same lesson in history when it comes to the abortion debate. Yes. And I think at the heart of that, right, is this every everyday practice of seeing the other as fully human and taking care of their needs. Such a, re a revolution sort of politically or socially cannot happen without that daily practice. The group I mentioned earlier that talks about Encounter Rehumanized International they have this great word and it's called sonder and it's from the dictionary of made up words. Um, but I love it. And it basically is this belief that every human being's life is as interesting and fascinating as your own. Like they're, they're the star of their movie and they're, they're just as important and significant. So whether it's somebody that, you know, a waitress at a restaurant, you don't even make eye contact with her or the person taking out the trash. And so you're able to think like, oh, these are extras in my life. Like these are inconsequential roles and people I don't need to pay attention to, like pay attention to them. Once you start seeing them as people who are just as complex and fascinating as yourself, like it's amazing how much that fortifies your own life. So Destiny, how can my listening community 
wherever they are, how can they support the work of New Wave feminists? So I think, you know, following us on social media and spreading the message about the work we're doing in Juarez because of COVID, um, and Juarez is not a super safe place. I have never uh, been there and not felt safe, but I understand why a lot of people don't. It's quickly becoming the capital of femicide and uh, a lot of really hard atrocities, which is the beauty of getting to serve there. There's so many opportunities and it it feels almost like my activism goes further there. So Juarez has my heart. I love Juarez, but I know that a lot of people can't necessarily go down. Um, and so being able to uh, support by donating, we've got an Amazon wish list for Hasnos Valer, uh, or even if you have any bilingual listeners, translating paperwork for people's asylum cases is something that we're always looking for. Um, because when it comes to asylum paperwork, something as simple as saying can instead of can't on the paperwork can get your asylum case thrown out. And these are Spanish speaking people who are expected to translate everything into English when they request asylum. And so we always need help, help in that way. And even just, like I said, spreading the message through our social media pages, I will say our social media pages are PG 13, at least for sure. A little bit. Um, I swear like a sailor. Normally your very calm podcast voice has made me a very calm, uh, much more professional person than I actually am. So <laughs> probably some swear words and a lot of nonsense memes. But uh, in between that, we have very profound posts about the stuff that's going on at the border and activism when it comes to the unborn and um, death penalty and racial justice and all that. So we would love for them to, to join us in this community. We call it our badass lady gang because it's just it's a hodgepodge of people who kind of don't fit anywhere. And, and the beauty in that is we're not beholden to kind of one ideology other than consistent life ethic and caring for everybody from womb to tomb. Well, yeah, I, I say often on this podcast that, you know, you can learn from anyone, especially people who um, don't present the same way that you present in your life, right? Especially people with whom you disagree um, and not only can you learn from them, but you can love them because they actually have nothing to do with your um, your, uh, your choice to love another person. And so uh, I, I love that I can um, follow you and uh, and read your nonsense memes and <laughs> be part of the be part of the badass lady gang, no matter how sort of nerdy and um, reserved <laughs> I might be. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it, it is an outlet for that. And I think also, um, you know, part of the beauty of, of the work that you do as well is that you really give people a very tangible way to engage the work of mercy, right? To, to be uh, um, a, a gift to other human beings. It's very easy. All you have to do is go to Amazon and click on an item and there you are doing it, right? There you are serving even if you can't go down to Juarez, or maybe, you know, you can digitally engage and do some some translation work or help with legal work or whatever your ability is, you know, it is a very easy way to escape the politics, to engage in that, that imagination, building a, a different way, a new way, a new wave way, right? Um, to, to be tender mercy, to be the mother, to mother the mothers. And if I can add one more plug, because this is an initiative that we're, we're pushing for this coming year, hopefully after COVID, 
fathers are really important too. And the shelter has realized that for the longest time, they have not allowed men on the premises because of, um, it can be kind of triggering to the women who have experienced trauma, but recently they had an addition built so they can take in more families. And there were a lot of male workers there and they found, especially the little boys, but even some of the little girls too, they were just so drawn to the, the male energy and having men around. And when we went down there this last time, I had taken a bunch of glow sticks and like the glow sticks were supposed to be the toy, but children are crazy creative. And so they ended up using like the cardboard sheaths that the glow sticks came in to make swords. And before we know it, they're sword fighting with our male friend we had brought down there and they were just glued to him. Like he got 10 times more attention than I've ever received. And as I was talking to Kay, she said, you know, our psychiatrist, they have one on staff there has said that it might be time to open it up to volunteer opportunities for couples. So husbands and wives to come down because they're realizing that representation matters when it comes to men as well and making sure that these children um, do get to see that in action, kind, compassionate, caring men and, um, you know, vetting them well, obviously, and making sure that they're safe people for the women and the children uh, is a a key part of that. But I think it's an amazing opportunity that they're opening that up to couples who do want to come and volunteer because they've just seen such a need there. And I think, you know, that that component of both motherhood and fatherhood and having both of it represented well is it's crucial. It's crucial for a lot of these children who they they need to see people who look like them and that are exhibiting the same compassion and love and kindness uh, and, and pouring that into them. It's really important. Amen. Amen. I really, really agree with that. And, you know, when I'm thinking about your definition of pro-life feminism, I'm thinking, you don't have to be a mother to be a pro-life feminist. You can certainly be a father and hold those same truths. Every time, every time I say our badass lady gang, a couple men pipe up and they're like, hey, what are we, chop suey? We're here too. <laughs> so we definitely have, have men in our ranks as well. Awesome. And, um, and I'm sure that my listenership also, also does. Okay, so last question for you. And I'm so grateful um, for your time today and for this amazing conversation. I just feel like kindred spirits um, in in many, many ways. Um, But what is one resource that you might point our listeners toward, whether they be mothers or children? Um, It could be a book, a poem, a song, a podcast, a website, a practice, a person, anything at all, something that they could hold on to and use to keep learning. Yeah, so I would definitely say for people to check out the Consistent Life Ethic Network, there are so many resources on their page um, from the very academic to stories and art and poetry and things that just really get to that core of like reframing the things that we we feel trapped in, that we, we always feel like we've we've grown up in this particular belief in this family and this political structure. And so this is what we have to do. And telling people's stories, I think is the biggest way to break through that. Um, that is the, the anecdote to, I think the politicization of everything is listen to people's stories, see people's hearts. And so for me, the consistent life ethic has given me that because it finally put all these feelings it, it named it. It gave it a structure and a format. And so um, their website has so many good resources. And 
you know, tells the stories of so many people who have been doing this work for a really long time that kind of have gone unnoticed or only noticed in certain groups. And it really, even if it's something you're not sure about, I think it'll really open your eyes to the fact that this is a place where I think think most of us will understand the human desire just for that golden rule type uh, society. And it's a place where we can learn these things to pass down to our children and say, you know, this might not really be like a recognized group. It's still super tiny at this point, but it's something that's spreading because I can't tell you like how many times I have someone reach out to me for coffee and the frustration they have with the current divide in our nation. And they're like, why can't consistent life ethic be a thing? Like, why can't this be a political party? Why can't this be a daily practice? Why can't this be something bigger? And I think that's where it's headed. I think we are making it something bigger, but it is going to take our generation and the generations that follow to catch on to it and say, this is an option. That's really cool. So I think that starts with us educating ourselves and our kids uh, about this concept to begin with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Destiny. I am just completely excited to have you um, in our community and excited to, to support your, uh, your work as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for spending time with me this week. You are a beloved child. And today, for just a few moments, you chose to be with me. I'm so honored by that. I hope you can feel how much you are loved. If you know someone who could benefit by spending time with us, will you invite them to the Diamonds for Our Children community? Help them find our website at diamondsforourchildren.com. Send them a link to the show on Spotify, Apple, or any podcast platform. Or search for Diamonds for Our Children on Patreon. Patreon members are eligible for lots of good things, especially the opportunity to help me turn this mama love into tangible giving in our communities. You can also share what the show means to you by reviewing the podcast on the free Apple podcast app. Rating and reviewing helps others to find our community and our love. And who knows, your review might just be featured on the doc website. You can also get in touch with me via email at diamondsforourchildren at gmail.com to ask questions or share your thoughts with me. I can't wait to be with you again next week. Together, we create facets of a unified love that reflect light back onto the world.